So on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the November 2015 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for another terrific conversation. My first guest is Dr. Paul Walker from University Hospital Aintree in Liverpool in the United Kingdom. He'll be discussing his article, The Association Between Heroin Inhalation and Early Onset Emphysema. Paul, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you very much for inviting me. My next guest is Dr. David Menino from the Department of Preventive Medicine and Environmental Health at the University of Kentucky College of Public Health in Lexington, Kentucky. He'll be discussing his accompanying editorial, Smoking and Emphysema, Looking Beyond the Cigarette. Dave, thanks for joining us again. And thank you for having me on, Kyle. So, Paul, lead us off. Let's just start also. What made you want to take on this research? It's it's definitely a, um, uh, a patient population that's not easy to study, I would imagine. Uh, that's certainly correct. Um, the, the background to this is is simply one of, um, I suppose, old-style uh, clinical observation and nothing more than that. Um, I've worked with Peter Carberley for, for, for many years. And if I, if I go back as far as the, I suppose, early, mid, late 1990s, even into this uh, uh, century to a little bit, every single time I was an admitting doctor, I'd see two, three, or sometimes many more people coming in with the complications of heroin injection, uh, mainly thromboembolic, um, sepsis, endocarditis, uh, groin abscesses. And since that time, those issues have really very much disappeared. And it's clear um, as an admitting doctor that people are not injecting heroin in the same way that they were before. As a chest doctor, I started to see people coming through the clinics I was doing and started to uh, admit people who were heroin smokers, who were young, and who seemed to have very severe and very impacting airway disease. And that's where this all started. And um, I know uh, background history in working with uh, people who use drugs, um, but I saw more and more people, and with conversations within the team and with Peter, um, I made a decision to start collecting cases, if I can put it that way. Um, and over the years, built up a, um, a data set, and the manuscript is um, the, fundamentally the first output um, from that data set. So um, the, the, the manuscript looks at uh, a case series, um, a series of 70-plus people, but particularly uh, 44 individuals who have some form of measure of emphysema. Um, Every one that we've included actually has spirometry and has evidence of airflow obstruction. And those people that um, had spirometric airflow obstruction and a clinical diagnosis of PD who didn't have a CT were um, very similar to those that did. When we analyze the CTs, we find that um, this uh, cohort uh, had uh, significant emphysema, um, often with an upper lobe predominance that we're used to seeing, but uh, a fair few of them had very homogeneous emphysema. And this was often very severe. Almost everyone had some form of emphysema, and uh, the majority of people had in the region of uh, 10, 20, up to 50% emphysema when graded via visual CT score by specialist thoracic radiologists. Um, What accompanied the emphysema was the fact that they had severe airflow obstruction, um, typical FEV ones at presentation around a litre, around 30, 25, 30% predicted, so severe and very severe COPD. And these guys were in their 30s. Um, The average age in the case series is 40 to 41. 
everyone at presentation, but everyone has symptoms in their 30s. And um, that's the background um, to this. It was a, a genuine clinical problem. Um, a lot of these people, um, uh, certainly in the early days as presented in the paper, died at a very young age. And we still see within the city many people who are heroin smokers um, who die prematurely. Um, and the reason for publishing the paper was to highlight this issue. I think many clinicians who work in cities and urban areas have seen people with what has been labelled sort of heroin, lung and crack lung before. Um, but we felt we had a, a good and large data set um, with useful clinical information. And it's in a very important public me um, health message, particularly to the people who smoke heroin. And I'd love to get Dave's input on this, because your, your article also addresses this, that the, the entity of, you know, crack lung, and when you start to talk about mechanisms of, of the lung damage being caused by heroin, um, you know, the, we can maybe draw some comparisons, but actually markedly different than, than the effects we see from, from cocaine. And so the, 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 the damage we're seeing seems to be very distinct and, and separate from anything that we're you know, seeing from other drugs of abuse. Uh, yes, it is, Kyle. And, and, and one of the things that fascinated me about this is that when you look at, at cigarette smokers, that a proportion of them develop emphysema and COPD. Now, back when I was in medical school, the number was 20%. I think in recent years, and depending how one measures, measures that, it, it bumps up into the 50% range. Uh, but even at that, that means that, that half the people who are regular smokers don't develop uh, lung disease. And we've been trying to sort of figure out why that's uh, the case. And what I found uh, really interesting about uh, about uh, Paul's paper here was that that that, uh, that it, it might provide some insight into why we see this heterogeneity amongst smokers. That um, that, that uh, in trying to you know, figure out what we're what we're actually seeing, you know, why did uh, people smoking heroin? Uh, do, uh, you know, why, why do some of these people develop uh, rapid onset uh, emphysema at a relatively young age? And that's something that we really don't know the answer to. And, and I sort of put forth a couple of different possibilities in, in my um, editorial. But one of the most intriguing ones is that it might be that the way that they're smoking it. Because uh, as I was doing research for the editorial, uh, that a, a way that many heroin smokers are actually smoking um, their, their the product is that they take a deep breath and then they perform a valsalva maneuver to actually sort of force the smoke uh, further into their lungs and get it into their bloodstream more quickly. And I was thinking, boy, I wonder if that's sort of you know the equivalent of of barrow trauma to the lungs that's, uh, th that people are doing on themselves and that might be accelerating uh, emphysema. And to my knowledge, that's something that has never been looked at uh, as a potential mechanism for why some smokers develop emphysema and, and others do not. That's fascinating. What do you what do you think? Um, when you're looking at your data, I mean, in your own experience, and, and maybe kind of in that same line that what Dave just said, um, have you had you know when you, when you reflect on this patient population, um, and I recognize that this is a stretch, but um, have you seen any signs of barotrauma, trauma, even lung injury, or even pneumothoraces? 
Um, we have seen pneumothoraces, although um, I can't say subjectively, and it is very subjective, that, that right, it appears to be higher than the, um, the general COPD population. Um, the... Um, the, the, the way that uh, the inhalation occurs, there is um, a soft signal, again, very subjective, that, that, that is akin to the very subplural uh, emphysema that has been described in um, cannabis smokers for exactly um, a similar reason, because of the length of time, the, the, the slowness of the inhalation, the breath hold, the length of time, and the valsalba maneuver. Um, but I also um, thought that it was a, an outstanding point about the uh, the temperature of the heroin fumes as well. Um, and I must admit, um, after reading David's editorial, I sort of went away and, and also did a little bit of digging. And I, I genuinely hadn't thought and realised that um, that on average heroin fumes, uh, heroin vapours are are twice the temperature and sometimes higher um, than typical cigarette smoke vapours. And I think it's absolutely fascinating to. Um, to consider that it may uh, have an impact of the temperature of the gas that you're taking in, never mind um, the fact that uh, that you're inhaling it in an entirely different way. Um, it certainly uh, made me go back to talk to our radiologists um, to ask them to to look at the scans further to see if that that sort of classic Valsalva picture of subpleural emphysema is um, is present. Um, now I have to say I haven't got as far as getting information back from that, but I think it's a, it's a really interesting point. Well, are we very familiar at all with, um, you know, I guess, and I think I know the answer, but I'll, I'll have you answer it, but um, of what what's actually in that vapor? Because, of course, we don't know what the heroin's been cut with. You know, when you were describing some of the various experiments that have been done to look at cocaine and or other substances, it was with a pure form and not one that's been you know, who knows what it was cut with, right? You don't know what the patient is smoking. Mm -hmm. And neither does the patient. But um, are you aware of anything? You know, we, we have a obviously a very good idea of all the various substances that are present in the vapors when you burn a cigarette. Um, but what about uh, with heroin? Um, I, I think that's exactly right. And um, overall, certainly our local um, heroin users um, suggest that the overall purity of the heroin has has probably um, increased over the years, but I don't think anyone would believe that anything more than fifty percent, and it may be much lower in the region of ten to twenty percent of what's inhaled, um, is actually pure heroin. Now, now, some of the associated chemicals are associated with the the actual production of the heroin, but there's no doubt that um, uh, heroin that's sold on the street is cut uh, at least once and often many more times. Uh, the kind of things that's um, been associated are uh, caffeine, local anesthetics, talc's been used before. Um, one of the, uh, the most interesting things that um, I've learned as part of this process is um, finding traces of beta agonist um, within um, the inhalant because ironically a good proportion, 15 to 20% of our heroin smokers actually use um, a cut out meter dose inhaler as a pipe to actually inhale the heroin. Um, so, uh, so <laughs> uh, 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 
strange and uh, somewhat ironic in a way. Um, but yeah, there were, there were absolutely a whole different range of chemicals. And that is one of the, the, the huge challenges here. I mean, we, we have real difficulty quantifying exposure, although my gut feeling is that's, that's probably not the, um, the, the key feature. But we don't have anything that's akin to pack years or even the suggested joint years for marijuana um, when we've tried to measure um, uh, exposure. The reason we presented our data in the years of heroin smoked regularly is because uh, however you direct people, you get a whole raft of different ways in which people express how much heroin they smoke in terms of the time, the number of bags, the number of wraps, the amount of money they spend. But of course, that's incredibly subjective. Um, how it's smoked and the device, um, most of our local heroin smokers use aluminium foil. Um, they use all kinds of different devices as pipes from glass to metal. Um, as I say, sometimes a meter dose inhaler, um, sometimes plastic um, is used used and with vapor at sort of 275 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, it's difficult to know if, if there are contaminants associated with that. And then, as you say, what it's mixed with, and as we've already discussed, the way that it's inhaled. There's, there's an awful lot of variables here. Um, and as you say, it makes it very, very complicated in comparison with something that's also complicated, <laughs> cigarette smoke, but somehow so much easier than heroin inhalation. I'm wondering if either of you could comment then on um, your, your hypotheses or your thoughts towards a predisposition towards the development. Obviously, there's not a control arm here in the sense of how many people are smoking heroin and not developing lung disease, and then are we are we finding a group that is you know predisposed by you know, whatever mechanism? I, you know, I knew you drew alpha one levels on your patients um, to at least try to address you know the one known you know genetic cause or risk factor, but. Um, I'm wondering, is it that, or do we think that, you know, regardless of a genetic predisposition, that we're creating some form of a of a substance that is toxic enough to the lung to to anybody? I mean, I am struck by the age of your patients. I mean, just how mm -hmm. young these people are with such advanced lung disease. Yeah, and my suspicion, Kyle, is, is that it's far more toxic, um, and at least based on uh, all things being equal. And granted, there's a lot of there are a lot of cigarette smokers in this group, but but all things being equal, and and this is advanced lung disease that was occurring at a much earlier age, and I think that that is what made this so dramatic. You know what we, and of course, but as you've said it, uh, you know brilliantly, what we don't know is what proportion of heroin smokers are not developing uh, you know, lung disease, and and we don't have that answer. Uh, and that's something that's incredibly difficult to get at because if, if some, uh, there's a group of people out there that are using but are somewhat resilient, they're not going to be showing up in the emergency room or, or wherever right. uh, as part of an evaluation. It might be uh, difficult to uh, uh, to get at that unless um, – uh, and, and, and there actually uh, – there may be some parallels, for example – uh, the, the idea of looking at drug-using populations and, and actually doing things such as standardized assessments, CT scans, pulmonary function testing on, on people that are in other studies of, of addiction. And, and I'm aware of a couple of these that have been done. Um, I can't recall whether they've actually targeted COPD. Certainly, uh, for example, there has been association between HIV infection and the development of obstructive lung disease. Right. Uh, 
uh, and, and granted, uh, in a lot of those populations uh, uh, may be uh, drug using. Uh, so, so, so I think there there are some uh, some inter- interesting paths to go to go down. But when when I saw this uh, uh, paper came come through, and I was one of the reviewers on it, it was um, it, 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 it highlights to me the importance of case studies and astute clinicians and recognizing patterns that may be plain in front of us, but that we're just not seeing. Because when you think back of it, you know, and the first three AIDS cases in the U.S. were a case series of three unusual pneumonias that clinicians tie the dots on. Uh, The bronchiolitis obliterans related to... um, uh, in, 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 in people exposed to, to uh, diacetyl, you know, popcorn right. lung, what again right. was uh, an astute clinician picking up a couple of, of, of cases and stringing those together. And, and, and I think yeah, here's another example that, that it may well be that the more we look for this, the more we're going to actually find it. Now, how much do you think might be also a synergy with cigarette smoke? Because obviously your patient population did have a uh, cigarette smoking history as well. But I think we would all agree, given their, their lack of alpha-1 deficiency, that the amount that they had cigarette smoked at their age, they clearly have some emphysema way out of proportion to the amount that they had had a cigarette smoking history. Yeah. And so I wonder, do we think this is, you know, did you have any in your cohort, I just don't recall from your data, that said, no, I've never smoked cigarettes, I'm you know, just smoking heroin, and we could try to tease out that effect versus a synergy between the two substances? Um, it's uh, it's um, absolutely the, 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 the very much the first question, and um, I completely concur with your comments that uh, this appears to be something that's more severe and early, but it's very difficult to entirely eliminate that. Um, in our um, in this particular population, because we were relying on, uh, in some cases, um, a, a retrospective note review, although we did have opportunity to try and fill in the gaps um, it, with some people, the overwhelming majority um, of people were um, uh, were smokers, although uh, the rate of crack smoking was very low in this case series. I do think that that is um, the way that that was asked because um, within our city, over 90% of people who smoke heroin do smoke crack as well, albeit to a much lesser degree and often for a much shorter period of time. And, and the impact of that is or the rationale behind that is primarily uh, financial, I have to say. Um, so I, I don't think it's possible to um, to entirely exclude um, uh, some form of synergy between um, the different agents. Um, in terms of actually getting a clearer prevalence, um, we hope that we might be able to answer that question um, within the next sort of year or two. Um, we have, um, I, I can sort of uh, present some or, or talk about a little bit of unpublished data. Um, we have um, tr- tried to screen um, a population at one of our local drug services, and um, we recruited um, 107 heroin smokers. Um, now, it was a, um, a, a quicker assessment where they completed some questionnaires. We did a CAT score and an MRT score and um, and some simple spirometry. And 
what was probably the, the single most striking thing is that regardless of spirometry, uh, these guys were incredibly symptomatic. Um, even people with completely normal spirometry were describing 60 to 80% of them had um, cough, phlegm, breathlessness and wheeze. And actually, if people had airflow obstruction, those numbers were hitting 70 to 90%. Um, so they're incredibly symptomatic. And one of the things that struck us most from that was that actually relying on symptoms alone in this population is, well, it's not going to tell you necessarily um, what the spirometry um, shows. And the other interesting signal that was coming through, uh, and this um, does link into um, the points that, that um, David was making before, was that um, although that population was, again, of a similar age, sort of late 30s, early 40s, um, as, um, as age increased, um, the frequency of um, abnormal spirometry increased. And I do think that um, the age at which um, people are recruited into, into these studies is going to be very important. And I, um, I suppose I have a gut feeling, again, that... Um, it's going to be a little bit more than, than, than the typical cigarette smoking emphysema in that out of our 32 people in this study who had um, a CT scan, um, every single person had some emphysema. Uh, now, um, five people had 5% uh, or less emphysema, but everyone else had a greater amount. Now, I know it's a very subjective um, population that's presented because of symptoms and has attended hospital. Um, but I do get the feeling from our screening data where about um, 30 to 40 percent of people had clear airflow obstruction, um, uh, but at least double that number were symptomatic, that there is a very good reason to try and study a subgroup of um, this population in more detail. I, I, I suspect that um, some of them will have more reactive airway disease um, and more asthmatic symptoms. I wonder if some will, well, we, we know that looking at that data, about 10% of people fall into the, the sort of the risk category and restrictive lung disease has been described um, uh, recently by Melissa Hall and other, and other people. Um, but um, my gut feeling is that it's not going to be quite the same interaction between cigarette smoking and um, underlying genetic factors, and there is going to be a more direct effect, but I think the former will influence the severity. Yeah, hey, what to do you follow think? up on that, Kyle, um, yeah. and Paul brings up a, a good point in that most COPD programs out there, and if you look at uh, you, know, the, you know, the programs that I and others have been involved with looking at uh, case finding or screening or, or other efforts, and they are targeting population of, you know, 40 or 45 and older. And and, you, and if you look at the uh, data in, in Paul's paper, and the mean age of death was 40. Right. So so if you're screening at 40 and... You, and you can't and find anybody for your study. That's right, and they're already dead. Uh, and that's, uh, which then, and this sort of turns this whole concept of case finding and screening on its head and that, uh, and, and the idea of, of finding other sorts of chronic lower respiratory diseases uh, more easily and, and, and certainly targeting. And I think his point about the symptomatology uh, is key. I, I and others have been 
uh, working on uh, moving away from uh, from screening techniques that involve spirometry uh, to things that that can focus more on other sorts of of uh, assessments of either symptoms or impact or uh, or exacerbation like events to uh, to sort of direct people to spirometry because spirometry simply doesn't. Uh, it's not utilized enough in primary care to be able to make mm-hmm. a difference. And in this population, it would have been uh, ineffective since they probably weren't going to the doctor anyway, and, and none of them uh, were old enough to have qualified for any type of screening or case finding. You know, at the time, they had advanced lung disease. Uh, I completely agree. And I, I Just to... to, to try and give um, our experience on a, um, a few of those points, um, which are very much uh, some of the issues that, that we're trying to deal with. Um, certainly within one of our local areas, um, the City of Liverpool splits somewhat in who, who provides health care according to the geography, but certainly in one of our areas, um, a referral for spirometry in someone under the, four, the age of 45 will just be rejected. There is absolutely no way within that area that these guys, outside of coming to hospital or presenting at hospital, will um, will get um, uh, will receive spirometry. Uh, and the impact is, is is still apparent within the city, um, within the sort of central and south Liverpool area. Um, the health services for uh, drug users, not just heroin smokers, but a, a much wider range of, of drug users, um, is arranged in a slightly unusual way um, that, based on um, a background over the last 10 or 15 years of promoting recovery associated with uh, methadone scripts um, and provision of that, that uh, most of this population interact with the health service in an entirely different way. Um, as David said, they, 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 they don't present to their family doctors. Um, they don't present to hospital often until they've got very severe disease or, or a significant flare. And it's, it's interesting that um, uh, within a, another hospital within Liverpool has described the fact that um, these, the people from this population present much later and are more likely to have type 2 respiratory failure and need NIV at acute presentation. And so the way that this um, group tend to interact with their health service in the city is through um, a a non-NHS organization, a private organization who provide uh, recovery-based services um, and provide those methadone scripts. And those are not done within um, uh, most family doctor surgeries. They're generally done in separate centers and separate organizations. The reality is the attendance of the, um, our cohort of heroin smokers at those drug centers is in the region of 95 to 100% because it's associated with receiving um, a script for methadone. And certainly one of the things that we're now looking at with our um, local health commissioners is to try and focus input at that, what we would call the anchor point. Um, so that's the only place where um, the, the majority of these people interact with health services. So that's where we need to go um, to identify them. And our local health commissioners have just agreed to, to fund um, <clears throat> screening spirometry, but also symptom questionnaires and, again, CAT score and MRC score in 
anyone who smokes heroin who attend one of these centres, and that's actually 1,100 people um, within um, the city of Liverpool. Um, so uh, it will be interesting to see how successful that is and what the take-up is. But one of the interesting things I have found is that um, these uh, th- this population are very, very keen um, to know more about their health, somewhat surprisingly, and are very, very keen to volunteer for spirometry questionnaires and um, and any health tests. And just the final point, I think some of that relates to the impact of this. Um, uh, we know from that population within sort of central and south Liverpool, a population of 1,100 people, we know that... Um, uh, between uh, 2013 and 2014, um, there were 40 deaths amongst uh, uh, the population of heroin smokers, and uh, half of those were certified as related to COPD. And um, I think we would we would sit back and say, if we had a condition that was um, causing uh, sort of premature mortality in a population of this age uh, related to COPD, we would absolutely want to sort of dive in there and try to do something. And we've been very well supported by our local health commissioners, and um, and and I hope that. Um, the, 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 the further funding and the further work that's taking forward will help us actually be able to address some of that. That sounds fantastic. That sounds extremely exciting. I can't actually wait to read that paper. <laughs> that data is going to be impressive. <laughs> Dave, what do you think? Yeah, well, to reiterate, I, again, I think that this is very uh, interesting and exciting. And, and not only to um, address problems really to, to heroin and other drug users, but uh, to me, uh, and this may also shed some insight into why some smokers develop disease and others right. do not, that, it's, uh, that I think this, this whole idea of how cigarettes are smoked and how that varies from individual to individual uh, may uh, give some insights, and and that uh, and this concept that barotrauma or, or or temperature, for example, a person that's smoking faster might be getting uh, cigarette smoke at a, at a higher temperature than than the more leisurely smoker, and that may also uh, have an effect on on damage in the lungs over a number of years. So so that's uh, uh, in addition to being interested and intrigued by the. Uh, by what's happening in drug-using populations, uh, to, that this could potentially provide insights into CUPD development in general is incredibly interesting to me. Agree. I agree entirely, and, uh, and um, sorry, just a very final point. I mean, in, in light of the, the editorial, um, we're going to try and uh, see what insight that we can gain into um, some of the questions that uh, David has raised within the editorial. So I, I hope at some point to try to be able to come back with some probably very messy data, I must admit, but in terms of, uh, as you say, how people spoke it um, and uh, breath hold time and the technique, um, I think that's absolutely fascinating and something that we may be able to provide some more insight into. Wonderful. 
looking forward to it. We have some in- interesting home visits going on here soon. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so any any final thoughts? I know you, you've, you've given some nice concluding statements. I just I wanted to be able to uh, be respectful of your guys' times and, and see if there was any other final thoughts that you'd want to put out there before we, we wrap up. Paul or David? That's That's it for me. No, that's uh, that. Um, that I've really enjoyed the discussion, and um, that's allowed me to sort of highlight the points that I really wanted to make. Well, I guess I have to ask you, Paul, have you ever been to the Cavern Club? Um, <laughs> I have, but I'm sad to say not to actually, not to see anyone play live music only in the form of a daytime, um, a daytime head-in. Oh, I'm embarrassed by that. And I'm not, I, do you know what, I've not even been to the Beatles story either. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I was. A, maybe I was. A, I think I was a Rolling Stones fan fundamentally, but um, either that and mixed up with with indie music in the mid nineteen eighties. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, hey guys, thanks so much for a perfect discussion, and, and Paul, congratulations on some some really nice work that that I, that sure sounds like you've got some fantastic follow up work uh, coming our way in the future here. Um, so I'm excited to see. Wonderful. Yeah, I got. I can't wait to present it, and thank you very much for your interest in inviting me. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thank you. Goodbye. All right. Bye-bye.